When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The tectonic plates in college football are continuing to shift. Okay, a lot of things going on in the college football landscape. Even before we got on the air, you got family bombs dropping about the national signing day calendar potentially looking a, a little bit different here in the not-too-distant future. Welcome in. It is Wednesday, 28th, or Wednesday, uh, February 28th, 2024, the last one on the face of this planet. Got a massive, massive show lined up for y'all today. We got LSU head coach Brian Kelly joining the program here in just a matter of minutes. Coach Kelly, extremely transparent about how he feels with year three in Baton Rouge, how he feels about Garrett Nussmeyer and his potential success in 2024. Also, Harold Perkins, he was an absolute freak show as a true freshman in Baton Rouge. Last year, if you're an LSU fan, you're like, hey, let that man cook. Cut him loose. Let him get after the quarterback. Let's not do this whole zone coverage, dropping him back in pass coverage kind of deal. Let, let him go hunt. Brian Kelly addressed that, too, with the uh, hiring of new defensive coordinator Blake Baker. So, got a lot to jump into. In addition, we got some focus on SEC spring football. Don't look now, but the good folks in Auburn, Alabama, they started spring football yesterday. Threw the jerseys on. Now, it's just helmets because that's the way that you start spring football is you have to have a certain number of practices and helmets before you can go to pads. But the reality is we got footballs being thrown around a facility. That's good news. That's good vibes for everyone involved. So we'll check in with uh, what's going on in Auburn as well as what we want to see from places like Georgia, places like Ole Miss. Heck, we got some thoughts on LSU as well. Also, the Big Ten. Ton of new teams being added, four to be exact, between USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon. What are the most important people, most important positions, rather, in the Big Ten that we need to keep an eye on. These people that I'm about to talk about here in a matter of minutes will have the most impact on that conference title race. Also, we got notes on Ohio State, total nothing burger from them in the NCAA. We'll give you the, our thoughts there. Also, we got Georgia. They've got a, a new phase they're undergoing here in the Kirby Smart regime. The staff is starting to change there. There's a really great article by Jesse Simonton on all3.com. So check that out. Hey, we appreciate y'all being dialed in. Make sure you're subscribed. Before we get to the conversation with Brian Kelly, I want us to kind of circle up together as a college football community and kind of get on the same page for where we are currently in the college football landscape. What is college football for us right now as college football fans? There's a couple of sectors that we got to address. The most obvious, the most recent news breaking is the, uh, the National Signing Day calendar. There's been people for a long time now saying, hey, this needs to change. There needs to be some sort of evolution in the calendar. And the solution or the potential solution that's being talked about right now in Indianapolis is uh, Pete Thamel reporting that NCAA officials are meeting around having another signing period. Now, this signing period would be the last Wednesday in June. Now, they would also adjust the current signing days. They'd move that December signing period to the Wednesday following the regular season. So that would be conference title weekend. And then they would also have the first Wednesday in February remaining as a signing period as well. So what do we think about this? As a whole, I think that changes with where we are right now, a good thing. There needs to be some evolution. But when you talk about the changes that are being proposed here, there's probably no perfect answer. But I mean, from where I'm sitting, putting a national signing day during the week of game preparation for teams during conference championship weekend, that doesn't feel like it's necessarily the best idea. It doesn't feel like we're really getting any further down the line to where we want to be. Now, the June signing day is interesting. And Josh Newberg and I were talking about this before the show. We'll have a segment on this tomorrow with Josh in the studio. But the thought that I had was like, okay, well, if you sign during June and then your coach ends up getting fired or leaving for the NFL and there's a coaching change, like, what happens then? Because you haven't enrolled yet. If you're a high school senior and you don't graduate early, what happens then? Do you have to wait to get on campus? And Josh made a really good point. With the day and age of the portal, we're now in an era where I think coaches understand like, hey, once the guy gets to campus, he's going to transfer out anyway. It probably saves us all some time to let him out of the, their, their LOI if they've already signed during that June period. So that could be a good solution. I think adding an early signing period probably was 
the best way to go about this. I'd be surprised if we don't have something like this happen, not because I have some sort of inside information, just because that feels like a pretty common sense solution. And if guys already know where they're going, like if you're already locked in as can be and you have no questions about your head coach and about your decision, like, okay, put pen to paper. Let's make this thing happen. My, my other curiosity here, though, is the personnel departments across college football, y'all, those are the backbones of our sport. That is what gets things done in the day-to-day. They work 12-plus hour days. Like I'm telling you what, they have a ridiculous amount of days they are, they are piling up throughout the calendar year. Like they're always working. And so my concern here is we're doing things to try and help them where we're making the photo shoots a thing where you can only do during official visits. I promise you the folks at personnel departments, they threw parties for that news. Uh, We're doing the thing where you can't really do the cookie cake in the room. You can't decorate the hotel room for recruits. Again, saving them some time. That was meaningless grunt work for them anyway. But now we're adding another signing period earlier in the calendar year. And they were working during this time, I'm, I'm assuming already, or they were doing something to get them further ahead in their work, whether it was called work or not. But like the concern I have now is we're we're continuing to stretch that part of our college football world increasingly thin. And I'm just wondering how how much can we stretch this thing before we start losing more and more good people to other industries or heck the NFL. And we're already starting to see it from a coaching perspective. We're seeing it from the personnel perspective as well. But like, I just, I wonder how much we can stretch that bubble before it bursts. So the, the national signing day calendar, the recruiting calendar as a whole, promise you, they're, they're not, uh, not going to stay the same. NIL, obviously, we talked about a lot on this show. I would be wildly surprised if we don't see the NCAA just totally pull back or get pulled back against their will from jurisdiction over all states. We understand now, given the ruling or the preliminary injunction that was granted, Tennessee and Virginia, pretty much the NCAA, Can't touch them right now. I don't think it's going to be a thing where the NCAA gets back in the game there. The bottom line here is NIL is continuing to find more structure. I think it's moving towards a more professional model. And however you feel about NIL to begin with, I think we have to agree. The one thing that professional sports gets right is the structure they have there. Now, I'm the last person to sit here and tell you I want college football to resemble a professional sport. It's not me. I've never, ever said I've appreciated that or wanted that for college football, but when it comes to money changing hands and when it comes to these kids making decisions for their future and making financial decisions for their future, you have to believe that like a greater amount of information and things happening above board, which again, the NCAA was previously prohibiting from happening. You couldn't have those conversations during recruiting visits and let them know exactly what that was going to be and give them a indication as to something that would play into their recruitment. That was against the rules. Now that you can talk about that, It's going to help these recruits make better decisions. It's going to help all parties involved. The last thing here, conference realignment and college football playoff expansion is going to be a talking point here really for the next three years. Really for the next three years because you got the ACC that I believe is on Jenga watch wholeheartedly. We talked about that with Mike Norvell on yesterday's show. Like the ACC, I don't think it's a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when Florida State ends up leaving that conference just the way that it feels to me. And if Florida State leaves that conference then the entire conference is going to go into disarray. I don't know if we reach Pac-12 level of disarray, but you understand if Florida State leaves, they're not leaving by themselves. They're leaving with a school like a Miami or a Clemson or another big piece of that pie from a revenue standpoint that would leave with Florida State. So at that point, what happens to the ACC? And that begs the other question, what happens to the college football playoff? Because we got that 5 plus 7 format right now, right? The five highest seeded conference champions plus the next seven highest ranked teams. Are we still going five plus seven if the ACC doesn't really hold the same juice as it did if Florida State leaves? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. But here's the thing that I want us to all get aligned on and, and feel excited about and encouraged about. You talk about college football in the future. And we said this previously with NIL, but I want us to drive this home because I think it, it stands true for the future of the game, just period. College football fans have more power than ever before. Because when we get into this era where there's some uncertainty about the future of the playoff and TV deals and all that, make no mistake, college football, for these suits at least, it's a product. For us, it's a a way of life. Like we want to see the best games. We want to see the right team's crown champion, all that. But for these suits, they're looking at a bottom line, right? That's it. That bottom line is made up of our decisions 
when it comes to watching college football games, when it comes to spending our hard-earned money on going to games or whatever it ends up being. And so this is not me telling you, choose wisely what you watch because the suits are watching and making decisions based on your, you know, games that you're specifically tuning into. I'm not saying that you watch less college football, not at all. But I do think it's interesting right now that what happens these next couple of years is going to be a direct correlation to how fans are consuming college football. And then we talked about NIL. Like, if you want to impact your roster right now, you can do that more than ever before. You have more power to impact your roster from a dollars and cents standpoint by giving to your program than you ever could. It used to be, hey, give money so we can build a new facility. Now it's, hey, give money so we can get that five-star. Hey, give money so we can retain our All-American quarterback. So it may not seem like it. It may not feel like it because you got all these big suit guys that are saying things about the future of the game and the future of their conference, but don't get it twisted. The backbone of this thing is still personnel departments and college football fans. So with that being said, we'll see what the future holds for us. But that's where we are currently in college football. Currently in college football, man, LSU has got a tremendous, tremendous opportunity in front of them. I am so fired up to see what they do in the Garrett Nussmeyer era. If you saw that LSU defense last year, it looked unrecognizable to previous defenses in Baton Rouge. So we got the chance, we got the privilege rather, to talk some ball with the LSU Tigers head coach, Brian Kelly. Without further ado, here's that conversation. We are now joined by the head coach of the LSU Tigers, Coach Brian Kelly. And Coach, i got to ask you now, when you first got to Baton Rouge, there were a lot of folks that had things to say about social media and the, the accent. And now two years in, two 10-win seasons, two top 10 classes, and a Heisman Trophy winner. So are, are you keeping receipts? That was the first question I had to ask you. Not really. I mean, I, a lot of that is good stories and um, stuff that you can laugh about. I still have a funny accent. You know, I'm from Boston. It's gotten twisted across the coast. So, um, again, I, I think, you know, more than anything else, they're, um, they're, they're really about, um, you know, what we've done here and uh, what we've done in a very short period of time in terms of uh, building some stability uh, back into LSU football. Now it's it's time to take that next step up. So um, that's really what I focus on. And don't, don't spend much time thinking about um, some of the antics and the silliness uh, that comes with it. You know, if you make a mistake here or there, um, you kind of live with it and you move on. Coach, you're a better man than me taking the high road there. Cause I think I would go back and find those tweets and say something, but um, anyway, that's, that's why you're the head coach and I'm over here doing a podcast. Uh, when it comes to year three for y'all, you hear a lot of coaches talk about, the evolution, especially when they first take a job of, okay, now it looks like my team. Do you feel like this is now a Brian Kelly brand LSU team? Well, the, the standards and, and the culture feels uh, so much more like what I'm used to. Um, but that, that's usually what happens in year three for me. Everywhere I've been, uh, you know, the third year has, has been, you know, really successful. So, um, I, I think the third year here is is feeling very comfortable in terms of the standards and the expectations and and how everybody has really um, you know adapted uh, to the style and the expectations. So um, again, you, you got to go you got to go do it on the field and and you you do it with with being successful on on Saturdays. But the day to day really starts to feel like. Um, we're in a really good position. And someone new to that day-to-day -day now is your new D.C., Blake Baker, coming over from Mizzou. Uh, what made him the right fit for y'all in Baton Rouge? Well, I think when you look at college football, it's, you know, not only do you need to recruit, um, you need to engage. Um, and, and I think, you know, his ability to recruit and engage uh, his players um, and, and then obviously at the end of the day, you know, have success, uh, with the guys that, that he's engaging on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, in my limited exposure to him, when he, when, when I first came on, I was able to spend some time with him and I really liked, um, his ability to relate to the players and, you know, Matt House is a smart football coach. Um, he was dealt a very difficult situation here. Um, and 
I needed somebody to come in and, and really build the confidence back in our football team. And I felt Blake carried himself that way, extremely confident in what he does and how he does it. And he engaged his players that way. So that, that made him the right fit for me. And I know schematically a lot of folks watched that Missouri defense last year and how often they got after the quarterback. And so you start doing the math. They're like, okay, aggressive D.C. on paper. And then Harold Perkins is also still on your roster. Is there any thought process or any tinkering this offseason with how he might be utilized in 24? Well, certainly we didn't maximize uh, Harold last year. And, and that's not, again, a, a knock on Harold or the coaches, but – the reality of it is he's an elite athlete that we have to get on track this year. So um, both Harold has got to play better and our coaches have to get him involved more. So um, that's an important piece of what we do in the spring. And certainly where he fits within our defensive structure um, is going to be job one for us. So uh, again, I, I think that uh, everybody that watched last year would say, you know, that's a guy that, that needs to play at a higher level. And that starts with coaching and, and that starts with Harold um, really working hard in this offseason. And then on the offensive side of the ball, taking over for Jaden Daniels, you got the, the gumbo gunslinger, Garrett Nussmar. Coach, I, I love watching him play football and watching him push it downfield. Uh, what excites you about him in 2024? I, I think more than anything else is his development. I mean, this is still a, a young man that, that is going to get better over time. I mean, he's going to get all the reps that he hasn't gotten. And we saw glimpses uh, of Garrett Nussmeyer with very few reps. And, um, and, and I think all of us collectively really liked what we saw. And, and so I think what's exciting for me is a guy that's really going to get a lot of the reps and is going to get better and better. Um, you know, we got a glimpse of it against Wisconsin and, you know, uh, as the game unfolded and he got more comfortable, he, he leads us on a 90-plus yard drive at the end of the game. And um, I think there's more to come, and, and that's the exciting part. And Coach, are you expecting any differences with the offense? I know you're obviously not giving away anything on the show, but just is there anything you're expecting with Joe Sloan now calling the plays for you all? Well, I mean, look, th this is still player-driven. Um, you know, Joe Sloan is, is going to do a great job, but – he doesn't have Jaden Daniels. Uh, so there, th that's the big difference, right? So, you know, the zone read is, is not what, you know, Garrett is not Jaden Daniels. So you're going to see an adjustment there. Uh, we're going to have to rely much more on uh, a running game uh, generated from the tailback position, not the running back position. Um, I think you're going to see uh, the tight ends uh, much more involved in what we do. Um I think what we were really uh, smart in doing is is bringing in about 1,600 yards in in reception yards with Xavion uh, uh, and uh, CJ, and both of those guys uh, are going to help us in the receiving core. But we lost a lot of uh, yards in, in terms of reception, so we've got to make it up in other areas. So um, other guys are going to have to step up the running game uh, and. Not having a Jaden Daniels means you're going to have to find it in other areas. And I think it starts with, with a, a much more effective tailback-oriented running game. With that being said, is there a position group you're watching most closely this spring that you're looking to really take, take that next step forward to kind of help your team in 24? Well, I think all eyes effectively are on the defense, right? I mean, that's where, you know, we felt like we did not play up to the level necessary to be a – playoff team quite frankly and our offense was and our defense was not and clearly all eyes are going to be on you know our defense we're young in some areas but I think very talented um, I think we've got a great staff that will utilize our players in the manner necessary for us to compete at the highest level so I think all eyes are going to be on you know what are we doing defensively what's the improvement uh, from you know, the defensive line, we've lost some really good players up front um, to what's the maturation level of the back end of the defense where we played a lot of young players. Um, look, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's easy to always move towards the offense, but I, I think they're going to be okay on offense. I, I think we've got enough weapons on offense. Uh, I think we've got an outstanding offensive line. And, you know, when you're trying to put together an offense, if you start with the offensive line, which we return a veteran group, I think we're going to be okay there. 
Um, I, I think that the focus has got to be on, you know, this spring in terms of playing the kind of defense necessary to get into the SEC championship game. Yeah, coach, when that new college football video game comes out, I'm going right to LSU and using that offense. I mean, we're going to we're going to score a lot of points. I'm excited about it. I'm really excited about it. I mean, when you talk about some of the guys you brought over from the transfer portal, college football is so crazy right now with the portal, with NIL. What is your compass or your philosophy in navigating this new age of college football? Well, I mean, we're responsible for a number of different things. So it, it just depends on, on how you want to get to the end result. The end result is still about being successful as a football program. But along the way, you've got to recruit. Um, you, you certainly have to uh, develop your players. You have to engage them. Uh, but look, here's the delta in this. You have to retain them as well. If, if you want to be consistent as a football player, program, you have to bring all of those together and be successful. So if you recruit, um, if you develop, if you engage, uh, if you retain and you're successful, it, you can do all the things that are out there. I choose to look at bringing in freshmen as the base of our program to do all those things and top it off with the transfer portal. Others look towards immediately bringing in as many transfers as possible and doing all those same things. I think some of those buckets are harder um, when we talk about, um, you know, retaining and engaging. Um, and I think you have to do all those things. So it's just a, a philosophy. And, and my philosophy is to do with more freshmen uh, than any, anything else. Yeah, Coach, in that same vein, we've talked about your success at LSU on the recruiting trail. Is there a certain edge for you or this staff when it comes to getting those kids to ultimately end up signing on the dotted line with LSU? Well, I, I think having a, a, a clear vision as to, you know, what's been good for you historically and, and what's been good for LSU is, is the South and in particular the state of Louisiana and and look, pull your base. I mean, at the end of the day, kids grow up wanting to be Tigers. They, they want to play here. I think there's only a couple of states in the country uh, that have that kind of passion. I think Ohio and the Buckeyes, and I think Louisiana and the Tigers. And so it just makes sense that, that your focus is on the state. And then, you know, the contiguous southern states for us. You know, we can go three, three and a half hours to, to Houston and – you know, we can hit all the states down here, including, you know, Florida and Georgia. And if we do a really good job of staying focused on that, and then, you know, there's always going to be the flyers outside, you know, that footprint. But if you stay focused on that, um, you can have success. And so far, so good. So far, so good. Without, without question. Well, Coach, we really appreciate all your time. Hey, last thing I want to throw at you. Can we get big Will Campbell in a number seven jersey? I, I see quarterbacks wearing 33 all over the country. Like, can we get him into a single-digit number seven? Is that something we can do this season? I'm going to have to talk to uh, our supervisor of officials. He's not too keen on um, these numbers and uh, eligible receivers and covering them up. And if we throw a seven on a tackle, I think that's going to – they're going to have to have a whole new muscle operated on those officials to – to know who's eligible, who, who's not eligible. But he's such a great kid and such a great athlete. He keeps bugging. He, he wants one of those tackle-eligible pass plays. So I, I got to figure out how to get him the foot. Awesome. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. Coach, again, appreciate all your time. And uh, can't wait to watch all good afternoon in spring and in the fall. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So a couple of takeaways from that conversation with Coach Kelly. The first is the way that he talked about Garrett Nussmeyer. He reminded us, hey, Garrett Nussmeyer, we're excited about him. Yes, he's done some good things in some games, especially the SEC title game two seasons ago, the bowl game. He looked great through for almost 400 yards, but we haven't even seen his final form. We've only seen Garrett Nussmeyer play with limited reps in practice. Now, he's obviously still gotten reps to begin with, so it's not like he's just starting from square one. But think about Garrett Nussmeyer now having a full offseason, a full spring ball being the guy in Baton Rouge. Think about a full fall camp for him where he's not wondering, okay, where do I stack up in the depth chart? He wasn't really wondering that last season, but you see my point here. More preparation, more of a lead up to him being the guy this season, I think could yield some, uh, some really positive dividends. Also, Harold Perkins, I was really encouraged to hear Brian Kelly talk about, hey, listen, hand up, we got to be better with him. 
Harold Perkins has some responsibility as well to be better, but like with how talented he is, with as much ability as he has, we as a coaching staff have to put him in position to be successful. I love the fact they're not just saying, yeah, hey, we're going to let it bake a little bit more. We got to find a way to, you know, allow him to get better. Like it's not just a thing where they're turning a blind eye and saying, give it some time. It's not a give it some time approach. It's a, hey, we got to move some things around approach if you're Brian Kelly with Harold Perkins. Also, you catch what he said at the beginning there? We tweeted the snippet out yesterday, but Brian Kelly is, is making it clear like, hey, year three for us, that's typically a big year, typically a, a pop year of sorts in Baton Rouge. So we'll see what happens, but that, uh, that over-under win total right now is sitting at 9.5 in Vegas. Do as you wish, but I believe Brian Kelly has, in the last two seasons, or the la- I'll rephrase that, his last two jobs, the third season for him, he has been under that 9.5 win total, I believe, zero times his last two jobs, both Notre Dame and Cincinnati. So, your decision, but sounds like some money to be made, if you're asking me. So, spring ball... Thank the Lord is here and it's happening across the country. It's not full-fledged just yet. We're going to get to that part of the year here pretty soon. And uh, we'll obviously have intel for you across the country. But we had Auburn start spring football yesterday, which kind of got me thinking, where do we need to be focusing on? What, what should be the main focus points for us, specifically in the SEC when it comes to spring football? Now, full disclaimer here. Spring football is for taking a temperature not for making a diagnosis. So you can learn as much as you're able to during spring ball, but don't, don't mistake spring football for fall football, okay? You're happy to see things trend in a positive direction, but until things actually happen on the field, that's when it actually becomes a little bit more concrete and you can start making some more definitive statements. So let's start out there in Auburn, Alabama, because they, they did just start spring football. The thing that we got to be focused on is Peyton Thorne. Is he making strides as the guy at Auburn? Because we understand now their quarterback situation could look a lot different after spring football. Wouldn't be the first time Hugh Freeze went into the portal post-spring and got someone to make that quarterback room better. So we'll see what happens there. But remember now, Peyton Thorne did not get spring football last season. And I have been on record many times saying I fully believe that that impacted his success or lack thereof in 2023. Because last season, they scored 25 points a game as an offense. Not going to cut it. Don't care what conference you're in. Peyton Thorne threw under 100 yards, not 200 yards, under 100 yards in five different games. So now you get a full spring practice. You get a full 15 practices to kind of gel, get more comfortable in the offense. Hugh Freeze is now calling the plays. Does that make the difference? Again, there's no way we're going to know for sure in spring football. But there's a couple of key indicators we can look at. The first is, is there definitive buzz? Is there definitive statements being made by Hugh Freeze when he talks about Peyton Thorne? And that would sound a lot like this. Hey, from, from last year to this year, he's night and day. He's night and day. You'd want to hear something like that. The thing that I'm a little bit curious about, if he says something like, yeah, he's coming along. Yeah, we're pleased with his progress. If it's not definitive, hey, he is much better than he was last year, then I think there's, there's a little bit of uh, reading into what we're doing there, but that's something that I would keep an eye on. Also, what do your eyes tell you? Right? We, we all watch a lot of college football. We're all sickos for this sport. We're talking about spring football, and Auburn just started yesterday. What do you see when Peyton Thorne trots out there for the spring game and runs the offense? What's the temperature you get? Does he look in command? Does he look more confident? Does he look like he knows where to go with the football, where to check it down? Does he look like he's confident throwing that bang eight downfield? I'm telling you, it's a temperature, but I think you can learn a lot from taking a temperature. Texas, it's going to take a while here for us to get totally acclimated to talking about Texas as an SEC football team, but nonetheless, man, they have a lot to replace at the skill positions. 1,800 yards receiving is a massive hole that's being left by Adonai Mitchell and Xavier Worthy, but Steve Sarkeesian did what Steve Sarkeesian does. Texas went to the portal and got after it, landing guys like Silas Bolden from Oregon State, uh, Isaiah Bond from Alabama, Amari Nyblack also from Alabama, Landed Golden from Houston. So they got some new faces in that room. My big question for spring football, do they get up to speed and get synced up with Quinn Ewers? Because as talented as those guys are, they will only be as effective as they are on the same page with Quinn Ewers. Because Quinn Ewers came back, now you got to maximize him. We talked about the same thing with Isaiah Bond. I'm curious to see how it looks with the rest of this group. The way that we can kind of keep a, a gauge on this is 
reading the reports over at Inside Texas, get on the message boards, get after it there, get a membership there. Best coverage when it comes to Texas football. Hearing things like, yeah, Silas Bolden, Isaiah Ball, and that whole group, they were out there before practice running through the script with Quinn Ewers. They were out there after practice running through different routes with Quinn Ewers, getting synced up, being on the same page. Because Texas last year, that was a big part of their offense. They were top 20 in the country in yards per pass and their completion percentage. Okay, anytime that completion percentage is high, obviously hat tip to the quarterback for being accurate, but just as much, you got a hat tip to that wide receiving room to being on the same page as their quarterback. Timing, chemistry, that's everything. That's going to be a massive factor for Texas their first year in the SEC with all those news faces. Uh, Ole Miss, is their defense as advertised? Because that has been a major talking point throughout the course of this offseason to this point, man. Like, Lane Kiffin went to work in the portal. Went to work. Landed nine new transfers on the defensive side alone. Most notably, Walter Nolan and Princely Uman Miel on the defensive line. What does it look like for them during spring practice when you hear reports about who won the day? Because that's always a thing that, you know, is, is baked into a spring intel or a spring practice report. Hey, defense probably won the day today. And that's not uncommon to hear those first few practices because the offense is still going through their install. You got some new faces, got some guys that were lower on the depth chart starting to step into a new role. So it's, it's not uncommon for the defense to win those first, oh, I don't know, six or seven practices to win the majority of those. When we get to practice 10, when the pads are popping, we got some scrimmages under our belt, what is the practice report around who won the day? Because I'll tell you this now, if you're the Ole Miss defense, you are, you're going to get the work in practice, all right? You're going to have a tremendous competitive battle on your hands every single time you lace them up. That offense last year, they got even better through the portal as well with Juice Wells, but like they averaged 32 points a game. Jackson Dart gets another year in the system. Trey Harris gets another year in the system. So if we hear about Ole Miss's defense winning a few practices during the spring season, again, taking a temperature, but I think that's a tremendous, tremendous sign for what they could be in 2024 because you got a college football playoff caliber offense. I don't think that's a stretch in saying that. If you have a defense to match, Ole Miss is going to be a problem. Straightforward, Ole Miss is going to be a problem. Now, LSU, we've talked about them a fair amount already on this show, but Garrett Nussmeyer and his decision-making has got to be Got to be the thing that you're watching if you're an LSU fan. I know you're watching what the defense looks like. It's obviously a big part of this, but we know Garrett Nussmeyer can launch it, man. There's no secret about that. Dude can absolutely deal the pill. There's no secret how much he can throw the football downfield. The question is, can he play within the structure of the offense and go where he needs to go with the football? Because the knock on Garrett Nussmeyer since he's been in Baton Rouge is, hey, dude likes to throw the football a quarter mile. The problem is sometimes when he gets to the end of that quarter mile, there's two defenders there, and one of those defenders makes a play on the football's interception going the other way. If he can do the right things in practice and kind of get into that habit of just taking what the defense gives him, check it down. When it's there, take it. When you got C.J. Daniels wide open downfield, man, or you got a window you can fit it into, Garrett Nussmeyer, trust your arm. But if you can be within the structure of this offense with Joe Sloan, I think good things will happen. I think last year was a really good Sample size for us. I understand now Mike Denbrock gone to Notre Dame. Jaden Daniels gone to the league. But you got an offensive line that can protect him. You got a defense that I think will be substantially better with Blake Baker running the show. If Garrett Nussmeyer doesn't crash the car and can do what he's capable of doing, which is put up big numbers in the pass game, LSU is going to be a force. LSU will absolutely be a force. One more team I want to get to here. The Georgia Bulldogs. Carson Beck now going into year two. There was some buzz around the NFL for him when the season ended. He's back, though. He's back. And the thing that I would love to hear from a Georgia Bulldog fan around Carson Beck is, hey, he's in command. He's dicing it up. And not just because he's your starting quarterback and that means the offense is doing good things, specifically because in year two for Carson Beck, I think you're going to need to ask more of him than you did last year. Lad McConkey was a dude for you when he was healthy. Brock Bowers, you played without him for a period of time last year, but he was obviously a massive part of that offense when he was there. They're not there anymore. You brought in some new faces, London Humphreys, Colby Young. There's going to be some new, new characters in the mix here. Carson Beck probably has to be the guy to be the catalyst for that offense. But I just want to see him look like a year two starter that came back for a reason to Georgia, that came back with some unfinished business. I'd love to hear Carson Beck be more of a vocal leader. He's a big lead by example guy. I want to see him get after some dudes. 
kind of set the temperature in that locker room, set the temperature during spring practice. Because when your quarterback is leading the show, when your quarterback is not just your quarterback, but the guy, not to say that he wasn't, but if he takes another step in being the guy, it just, it permeates throughout the entirety of your roster. When you know that the dude touching the football for you, every single offensive snap is bought in throughout the entirety of the team, does wonders for your approach in the week-to-week and day-to-day. So Carson Beck taking that next step and just just feeling like he's that dude, right? And, and understanding throughout Athens, like, hey, this is the guy, and he believes he's the guy. I think that's a tremendous temperature you'd like to take in spring football in Athens. So this will be something that we might do throughout the course of, I guess, the next couple of weeks as we get into spring football. Obviously, we didn't touch on every single team in the SEC. So get at me on Twitter, get at me on Instagram, and let me know what you're focusing on when it comes to spring football within the Southeastern Conference. A lot of uh, lot of ground to cover there within the SEC, man. A lot going on, a lot going on. Kind of a kind of a wild time in college football as we now are talking about the National Signing Day calendar. And oh, by the way, spring football is on and popping. So we love to see that. Hey, I want to stay on Georgia here for a second because Jesse Simonton does a tremendous job for us here at On3. He's got a column right now on On3.com kind of talking about that next phase for Kirby Smart and all the the staff turnover that he's had currently. So go check out Jesse's work on On3.com. Go check out that article if you haven't already. But I want us to kind of unpack this together because I think it's kind of a unique challenge that Georgia's facing here in 2024. This is something that we haven't really seen Kirby Smart have to address in the nature they're going to address it in 2024 and the way they've already addressed it in 2024 with the staff changes. So before we get to that, make sure you're subscribed. Georgia fans had a lot of y'all get locked in with us over the course of the last few months. College football fans, period, whether you like Georgia, whether you like Auburn, whether you like Ohio State, Michigan, whoever you're a fan of, I promise you, we're going to talk about them. We're going to talk college football every single day. Uh, If you're watching this as a one-off video, shouts to you. But if you're watching this as a live cut, you're a real one. We do a live show Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 11 a.m. Eastern. So quick plug there. All right. As I mentioned, a lot of staff moves for Kirby Smart. You've got Will Muschamp stepping down from the co-OC role kind of taking a step back to a degree with what he's doing on that staff. Your secondary coach, Fran Brown, has gone to Syracuse to be the head coach. Del McGee, gone to Georgia State to be the head coach. Uh, your wide receiver coach has gone to the NFL. Like, there's a lot of, lot, lot of movement here on Georgia's staff, more than I think we've really seen in recent history. Now, to be fair, Kirby Smart has absolutely addressed those needs in a very big way, addressed those vacancies in a big way, brings in T. Robb from Alabama, Dante Williams from USC, James Coley to coach the receivers. It's a guy he's familiar with. Like, there's a lot of things to be excited about if you're Georgia, but still, the question remains, how do they evolve with this new staff? Is that something that ends up being a, an Achilles heel for Georgia? Is the acclimation of the staff to this roster? Because anytime you bring in a new coach, I know it's Georgia, so we just kind of assume that that logo and that brand's going to be sustainable. But still, that's a very big change. You work with your position coach, more closely than any other individual outside of the strength and conditioning coach as a college football player. Like, that is the dude who sets the course for your football team. And so if I'm Georgia, this is going to be, in some ways, a challenge. And and Jesse Simonton does a great job addressing this. But the reality here is, if you're Kirby Smart, like, you knew this was coming. We talked about it, I mean, when they won the national championship two years ago, when Todd Munkin left for the NFL, you knew this was coming. And they haven't been without making some changes to their, to their staff. Like Todd Munkin, like I just said, went to the NFL. Dan Lanning was a co-DC for you. He's doing what he's doing at Oregon. You knew this was coming. But this is the circle of life in college football when you have success. People see you have success. They want to try and take just a small fraction of what you have and bring it to their program. And like, this is what it is. And what we've seen here from Kirby Smart so far is encouraging. But what we've seen really be successful is what Alabama did with Nick Saban. How many times do we hear about new coordinator in Tuscaloosa, new position coach in Tuscaloosa, hey, new personnel, new this, new that, and every single time Alabama was able to withstand that and adapt. The philosophy was always the same for Nick Saban, and I think the hires that Kirby Smart made for these position coaches tells us a lot about their philosophy. It is talent acquisition first, second, and third. That's it. That's it. Obviously, you got to buy into the way that they do things and the culture, but like the guys that he has added to this staff, from a Dante Williams to a T-Rob to a James Coley, they are all ace recruiters. Dante Williams was the guy that recruits were talking about when they were taking visits to USC. Kids would talk about Lincoln Riley and the offense. They would talk about their relationship with Dante Williams. T-Rob, same deal at Bama. James Coley, 
absolute dog on the recruiting trail when it comes to what they do in Florida. They're going to be just fine when, acquire, when it comes to acquiring talent. That's still the end-all, be-all for them. But what I want to get to here is, for Georgia, just because the, the personnel changes, because the route kind of adapts to this new staff, doesn't mean that the result is going to change. And I have zero reservations about Georgia, strictly because of who's running the show there because of Kirby Smart. The reason why we always trust the Alabama was because it was Nick Saban's football team. It was never Nick Saban's football team, but he's handing off this portion of the program to somebody else. He might give responsibility to somebody else, but it was never a thing where he was taking his hands off the wheel and just letting them run roughshod and he didn't know what was going on on offense or defense. Every single move he made was calculated and for a purpose and to adapt. And that's the same thing with Kirby Smart here, man. That's the exact same thing. Kirby Smart sets the temperature for Georgia football. He is a thermostat. Until that changes, until there's some other wildly unforeseen circumstance that changes Kirby Smart's standing with Georgia football and his responsibility overseeing Georgia football, then you can start to have some concerns. Then we can start to talk about Georgia football when it comes to them taking a step back. This new coaching staff, they're still going to recruit in the top three, if not the top class, I would imagine, every single year. They're still going to have the set of values and the set of habits that have made them champions over the course of the last couple of seasons. Why? Because it's Kirby Smart's football team. Bloody Tuesday, not going anywhere. How hard they practice, same deal. How hard they develop and train, same deal. That's not changing at all because of who Kirby Smart is, because of how much he demands. And the reason why they're able to do that kind of demand, the reason why they're able to ask so much of their players and their staff is because they've seen the results now. That The proof is in the pudding. If you do things Kirby Smart's way, you will win and at the very least compete for national championships. That point stands on its own. And if you have an issue with that or you have some pushback with that, you can go take a walk down the hall, look at the trophy case, and see not one but two national title trophies in there. So the staff is changing. This is just a part of college football head coach life. If you have success the way the Kirby Smart has had success. And here's the thing, too. If they have success this year, there's going to be more churn. There's going to be more changes. There's going to be more guys that go to the league, whether it be player or coach. More coaches that get head coaching job offers from Kirby Smart staff. And again, that is a testament to Kirby Smart and the way that he's done things. So the next phase for Georgia is in full effect. But again, I have absolutely zero concerns about the direction of Georgia football as long as Kirby Smart is wearing the head coaching name tag. A lot there. A lot there to unpack. And, uh, and I can't wait for Georgia to hit spring football. It's going to be a lot of fun to get a gauge for the, uh, the intel surrounding Carson Beck and the new coaches. I mean, just... It's a, really, it's a real turning of the page kind of part of the year for us in college football as we get into uh, what these new teams are going to look like. Speaking of new teams, got some new teams in the Big Ten Conference. Let's take a look at who the most impactful people are, player or coach, within the Big Ten Conference title race this upcoming season. Now, full transparency, I did my very best to limit this list to the least amount of QBs possible. You could name a quarterback for every single most impactful person when it comes to the Big Ten. We try not to do that. But with that caveat, we're starting with the quarterback in Ohio State's Will Howard. Arguably the most impactful person when it comes to the Big Ten Conference in 2024. The task for him, man, can you make Ohio State's offense elite again? Not good. They were good last year. 30 points a game. A lot of schools would kill, would kill to be 30 points a game. Ohio State's not good enough. They expect somewhere in the range in the neighborhood of 40. The reason why that's so important, you got a championship-level defense. You bring in the best player in the transfer portal in Caleb Downs from Alabama, and you add him to a defense that was already top five last year, and oh, by the way, they bring back just about everybody. So that defense is going to be more than good enough to get the job done. Is Will Howard the upgrade from Kyle McCord that you believe he is to get you over the hump and to accomplish what you want to accomplish? The thing that I love about Will Howard outside of what he brings to you on the field. His mobility is a big factor. His experience is a big factor. But the fact that he is inviting the pressure that Ohio State presents. Will Howard had some options now. Sounds like he could have gone to USC at one point in time. Have to believe there were other suitors for Will Howard that were blowing up his phone. I know he visited Miami as well. He is inviting the pressure individually and on a macro level that comes with Ohio State. Because Ohio State as a team, the expectations are what they are. This is the year to go do it. Whether that's fair or not, whether that's reasonable or not, this is the year for Ohio State to go win a national championship because of what I just mentioned. 
But individually for him, he gets it, man. Like, this is his last shot. This is his last shot to make an audition and a good impression for his NFL prospects. And he chose a very visible brand, a very visible spot as the quarterback at Ohio State in a place where the expectations are sky high for that position specifically. I mean, if you think about it this way, Ryan Day has established a standard of if you play quarterback here, you are going to be Heisman Trophy finalist, you're going to be a first-round draft pick. Kyle McCord did not measure up to that last year, was not guaranteed the starting spot going into 2024. Hey, if, if you don't want to battle for your spot, I don't know exactly how that conversation happened, so I want to tread lightly there. But if we're, you know, Kyle McCord, hey, you're not guaranteed the spot, he goes to the transfer portal. Extremely, extremely high-pressure spot, and uh, Will Howard, I think, is cut out for it. But regardless, whether he thrives or whether he has issues, it's going to have a major impact on that conference title race. Penn State's wide receiver, Keandre Lambert-Smith, another major, major impact individual this coming season. He has the responsibility of adding that extra gear to Penn State's offense. Keandre Lambert-Smith, kind of that deep threat guy for you. Last year for Penn State, it was obvious. They had one speed. It was Nick Singleton. It was Katron Allen. Had some play action mixed in there at times, but for the most part, Penn State had to win with defense. When they played equal competition from a roster perspective, they had to win with defense. They were 6.7 yards a pass in 2023, good for 86th in the country. Translation, not good enough to win the Big Ten. If that number is going to increase, it's going to be, I would have to believe, in large part due to Keandre Lambert-Smith's abilities. Same thing we said about Ohio State. It's true for Penn State. That defense, I believe, is going to be good enough to keep you in contention for that conference title. Top 25 returning production, from a season ago, you got to score to win the Big Ten. Got to score. There's no way around it. You have to beat Ohio State. You have a game at USC. To beat teams like that, you probably have to get into, I don't know if a track meet is the word I would use, but you have to score north of 30. Last year, Penn State was not doing that, and the games needed to do that. So Keandre Lambert-Smith maximizing Drew Aller, maximizing the play action from that run game, he's going to be a very, very big part of that. Real deal speed, too with Keandre Lambert-Smith. Let's talk about Michigan here. The most pe- impactful person in their building, for my money, outside of Sharon Moore, outside of Wink Martindale, you could name both those guys, but Michigan running back Donovan Edwards is going to have a massive role in 2024. He is obviously going to get a large amount of carries with Blake Corum gone to the NFL, but let's not get it twisted now. Just because it's a new head coach with Sharon Moore doesn't mean that identity with them offensively is going anywhere. It is still going to be a run-first operation. It is still going to be run the football downhill, make you say uncle for four quarters, and Donovan Edwards will have a large part in doing that. They were a 60% run the football team in 2023. A lot more of that's going to fall on Donovan Edwards' shoulders, like I mentioned. The thing with this for me that's interesting, if I'm Michigan, J.J. McCarthy's gone in the league as well. So whether you go to the portal post-spring, whether you go with Jack Tuttle, whether it's Alex Orgy, somebody new is taking snaps for you in Ann Arbor. So the best way to take pressure off a new quarterback is what? Run the football. Power right, power left. If Donovan Edwards can be effective enough in doing that and give this quarterback some room to breathe, that'd be the way you'd like to live if you're Michigan, and that will make ultimately that new quarterback's job a heck of a lot easier. So Donovan Edwards, huge, huge impact in 2024 for Michigan. We talked about this guy yesterday, but I want to talk about it again. I tried my best, y'all. I did, I did what I could to try and think of somebody new for USC that'd be more impactful. I keep coming back to Danton Lynn. Keep coming back to Danton Lynn. And think about it this way, too. Every knock right now in February about USC is about the defense. Mind you, they just lost a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback in Caleb Williams. He's gone to the league. And that was a massive loss, obviously. There's a massive, I think, disappointment that you didn't maximize having him on campus. But we're not talking about the offense taking steps backwards. And they might take a step backwards transparently. I mean, it's... Miller Moss or Mayava from UNLV, whoever it is, like the offense might not be as good, but you can manage that a little bit if your defense just takes some sort of incremental step forward. You don't have to be world beaters. Just allow a touchdown less, and USC's probably in a whole more, well, a whole heck of a lot more football games. They allowed 34 points a game last year. Did USC's defense? What if they're allowing 27? How much does that change the complexion of USC's season in 2024? How different do we talk about USC overall? Because as much as the offense might take a step back, are we really betting that Lincoln Riley doesn't have a quarterback? Is that really how we're going to go about this season? 
I understand the Big Ten is going to be more difficult. We understand there's going to be stiffer competition. It is what it is. But if the defense is just a little bit better, in large part because of Dan Lynn bringing some new juice, some new energy and confidence to that room, I think that changes the way we view USC in this conference title picture. Again, we're not predicting USC to win the Big Ten at this point in time, but Dan Lynn will have a, uh, have a lot to say about their success in 2024 leading that defense with the rest of that new defensive staff. Now, Oregon quarterback Dylan Gabriel, another quarterback we had to get to him here. He is the steady, experienced hand you're banking on if you're an Oregon fan to win the Big Ten. Because Bo Nix gone to the league, most experienced college quarterback in the history of the game. You bring in Dylan Gabriel, who's also been around for about a half century playing ball, and we love him for it, man. If you can play ball, keep playing ball. He has a ton of pieces around him. The defense, they bring back 70% of that production from last year's team that took a run for a Pac-12 title. Had a chance to go to the college football playoff. Didn't get it done. You still have explosive weapons. Tez Johnson. You went and got Evan Stewart through the portal. There will be everything Dylan Gabriel needs to be successful in Eugene. Can he maximize it? Can he be that difference maker in those games where it's even roster talent? You're going back and forth. Can he be that playmaker for you to take you above where the roster talent is and make that timely play like he really did against Texas when he was at Oklahoma? He's going to have a massive impact on the Big Ten Conference race. And however you feel about Oregon is probably very closely tied to how you feel about Dylan Gabriel. Last one to get to here, offensive coordinator for Nebraska, Marcus Satterfield, man. Like, he is responsible for having a respectable offense in Lincoln. And I want us to get on the same page here. I'm not talking about Nebraska in the context of winning the Big Ten in 2024. Do not hear me incorrectly. This is massive on a macro level for setting up year three for Matt Rule. And when I say respectable on offense, they had 18 points a game last year offensively. 18. We understand now. You got bowl game aspirations. That's not going to cut it. You had a defense last year that really probably could have ranked even higher than they did last year. And they were elite last year, allowing 18 points a game defensively. Like, if you get them off the field a little bit more frequently, you give them a little bit more rest as an offense, who knows what Nebraska does? Who knows how many games they end up winning? I guarantee you they go bowling if they score 24 points a game last year. I digress. On top of that, if you're Marcus Satterfield, you are tasked with bringing along a one Dylan Riola, most talented quarterback prospect Nebraska's had here in some time. And if he's able to be comfortable, be confident, and have some amount of success his first year on campus, because again, I wholeheartedly believe he will be your guy for you day one in Nebraska, that's going to set up, again, year three. Because year two for Matt Rule, given the track record for him, year two is about kind of getting that snowball rolling a little bit. And when you have success in year two, it sets up a big year three. So success in year two for me would look a lot like seven and five, eight and four. If you can do that, you can then sell that to recruits, to transfer portal guys. Hey, look at where this thing is headed. Look at the up arrow here. Look at who we got playing quarterback. Look at our success from year one to year two offensively. If you can pitch that going forward on a macro level, you at least get yourself up off the map if you're Nebraska. So again, we're not calling our shot for Nebraska to be an Indy when it's all said and done that first weekend of December, but I do think this will be massive for them when it comes to their aspirations for the future and beyond with Matt Rule running the show there. So a lot of high-impact names right there. And again, that's not all-encompassing. There's probably more that we would get to in the future. We might do that in the future, but a lot of high-impact names for us to get to, and uh, that's just a short list when it comes to the Big Ten Conference. So if you had your head on the swivel yesterday... You saw that Ohio State reported, self-reported rather, some violations to the NCAA. Now, full transparency, I think this is a complete nothing sandwich. When you read into this, this is a nothing sandwich. It's four level three violations. Level three is the lowest number of violation you can have when it comes to the NCAA. So what did they actually do? You had a coach reach out to someone who was announcing their intentions to enter the transfer portal. They weren't officially in there. So they had to report themselves and say, hey, our bad. Once we figured out we couldn't contact him, we backed off. Uh, you had a high school player receive an edit before they were allowed to receive an edit, I believe. You had a recruit taking pictures with two unnamed boosters. You had a staff member that commented on a kid's commitment announcement on Twitter. You see why these are level three violations? To put it simply, the NCAA defines a level three violation as it provides no more than a minimal recruiting or competitive advantage. Keyword there being minimal, aka doesn't matter, aka 
nothing burger. So why are we even talking about this? Why is this even something that has to be addressed? Because I think the concern here is you'll see other fan bases see the graphic pop up with an Ohio State logo or Ohio State helmet or the Buckeye or whatever and see the headline of violations, self-reported violations in recruiting and say, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, this is, hey, we told y'all they were cheating. We told y'all, we told y'all that they were up to no good because Ohio State transparently is a massive brand. It's a massive brand. And like, I love my alma mater, but if Cornell had something like this happen, if it made the news, I don't even know if it would, if it did make the news, nobody would even bat an eye at it. Nobody would even care. But the fact that it's Ohio State, it's a polarizing brand. It's a high-stakes environment over there. There's a lot expected of them. The impact of this year will be massive. And also, all the news they made on the transfer portal side of things, acquiring guys like a Caleb Downs, like a Julian Sane in the short-term signee fashion that they did. Everyone's like, oh, that's, hey, this is, this is what it was. This is, hey, we got him. This is what it was. I think we're reaching a little bit there if that's the approach we want to take. It's Ohio State. That's why it's news. Also, let's call a spade a spade. It's February. There's not games being played. So when you see stuff like this past the timeline on Twitter, you're like, oh, okay. Hey, there's some college football news going on here. All right. If it was fall camp and we had quarterback battles going on, we were discussing, people would like glance at it and then keep scrolling. So what does it mean for Ohio State here in the long term? Absolutely nothing. This is not social media ammo. And Spencer Holbrook over at Letterman Row, the Ohio State on three site, put it perfectly. These are self-reported violations that happen routinely across the country. It's not just Ohio State. Because it's Ohio State, it's getting traction. Because it's Ohio State, it's being used as social media leverage against, you know, different message board debates. But, like, this, this doesn't actually mean anything for Ohio State in the long run. And I want to even say this, too. Like, what's the unfair advantage that Ohio State's gaining by doing this? None. <laughs> None. Because a kid got to edit? He's going to pick Ohio State? That's not how it works. Might feel nice for the, you know, the Instagram. Might feel nice for the ego. But, like, that doesn't doesn't change the standing. I think two of those four violations were actually around committed individuals. So it's not like you're going out and making the difference with a small gesture or a small impermissible benefit at that point in time to swing them to Ohio State. That's not the case. That's not the case here. So for Ohio State, man, this isn't them getting a leg up on anyone. This isn't something to post to a message board or send to your buddy and say, hey, hey, we got you. Told you all we're cheating everyone's doing this whether they're self-reporting them or not is another matter but everyone's doing this ohio state's just getting in the news because it's ohio state so it is what it is but call a spade a spade it's february appreciate everybody dialed in live man let's get to y'all's thoughts questions concerns bring it on the keeper of the queue nick heavy lifter break nick what's up baby how we living living pretty good it's been a kind of a crazy show today hasn't it um yeah, we got some SJD stuff here in the chat, so we'll get to it. We'd love to see it. Uh, right now, I just have to scroll up a little bit. I think it was the truth who was asking a question, so I'll get to that. Yeah, what's he saying? Um, since the four-team playoff folded shop this past season, what is your top four national champion runner-up teams since the playoff format started? Ooh. Top four runner-up teams. That's good, dude. Golly. Top four runner-up teams. It's hard to not put one of those Bama teams in there. Because or the ones that lost to, to Clemson, that is, because those, I'll go back. The team that lost to Alabama on the final play of the ball game, Deshaun Watson, Hunter Renfro, that was a really good team. Have to talk a lot about them, probably, if you're going to have a conversation around best runner-up teams. Um, you know, that first year of the playoff, Marcus Mariota in Oregon, man, they ran into the buzzsaw that was Cardell Jones and the Ohio State Buckeyes, but, like, I thought that was a team that could really have made some noise when it comes to you know, another playoff field should they have found their way into it. So those two probably get the most buzz to me. I'm probably missing one, to be honest with you, but I'll, I'll go with those teams. Clemson, too, when they played at 2019 LSU, same thing. Buzzsaw, but like Trevor Lawrence was on that team, could very easily have been a national title contender given another playoff field in another era. Yeah. Um, what was the Georgia – what year was it when – Tua came back in Ooh, the second that one half. Too. I'd say that yeah. yeah. 2017-2018, I yeah. believe it was. Yeah, you got to throw that team in there too, man. I would say Golly. Uh, Braxton, uh, who usually is asking some South Carolina questions, today's no difference. This is a good one too. Uh, says if South Carolina can go 9-3 and three in a tough schedule they have this year, what does that mean about the future of the team and what, is it, and what everyone is saying about them at the end of the season? Yeah, I think it means that, hey, Shane Beamer's your guy. 
And we've been saying that for a while here. We think he's the guy at South Carolina. We're not tuck and tail because it's been one subpar season and he had two overachievement seasons before. Like, understand, it's the SEC. If South Carolina's in the Big Ten West last year, no shade to the Big Ten West, they're probably an Indy. If they're in the ACC last year, maybe they have a chance to compete for a, a spot in that conference title game. So I don't want to overstate how strongly we feel about South Carolina, but if they go 9-3 and three this year, that would be Shane Beamer once again overachieving, once again doing more with less when everyone's talking about other teams in the SEC. They just go to work, find a way to get it done, and uh, you also probably feel pretty good about Lenora Sellers and the fact that he's going to be your guy here going forward, if that is, of course, your quarterback, assuming he is mm-hmm. with the Rex specs. Yep. Uh, this next question is coming from Micah. says, what would it take for the Kentucky Wildcats to be the top-tier SEC program in the next three years? Ooh, top-tier. So I'm assuming he's saying number one. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming nah, he's like thinking top, there. I'd say top three. Top three SEC team? What? Man, it's tough. It's getting more crowded in there, Nick. Got to win it's the big getting, games. It's getting more crowded. Got to win the big games. They'll have a chance to here. Let's take a look at Kentucky's schedule. I'll pull it up here in a second. I mean, I'll say this too. You got a head coach of Mark Stoops who I think is, is the answer there. And, and he understands this, too. He said this, I believe it was after the Georgia game. Like, hey, they just got a lot of five stars. And, and he said as much to say, like, if you want us to have more five stars, you got to give them more money. you got to give us five-star resources to land five stars. And if I'm a Kentucky fan or I'm a Kentucky booster, I might say, okay, well, we need some five-star results, and maybe we'll give you some five-star money. Uh, they're at Ole Miss. They played Georgia in early September or mid-September at Tennessee, at Texas, Louisville to finish the year, obviously, which is a non-conference game they play every year. But, like, they're going to have their chance to make some statements. I mean, if they win that game in Austin late November, the game at Neyland, start the year hot with the win over Georgia in, in Kroger Field, like, that'd be massive for, for optics. I think a lot of it here is, yes, NIL resources has to be in place. I think the way they've worked the portal has been – a pretty good way to go about it. And I don't know that they've been like the the team in the portal, but landing Brock Vandergriff, if that hits the way that I think it could hit for Kentucky, that could change the trajectory of their 2024 and beyond with the way that uh, folks view that that quarterback position uh, in uh, in Lexington. Because Devin Leary mm-hmm. last year didn't have the success you wanted to have. Bottom line here, this is a tone setter year in the new SEC. If Kentucky can have something solid on paper and sell out in the recruiting trail and the transfer portal, that's what you got to do. Uh, J.D. Cody Belair says, uh, since Cornell won't be in the college football 25, uh, sad. Who are the fighting Pikels going to be for you in dynasty mode? Dude, I've, I've been asked this question a few times. Eastern Michigan, Grayfield, had a buddy that, uh, that worked at EMU for a while there. Blue collar town in the shadows of Ann Arbor, Michigan, Ypsilanti. Like, I would, I'm, I'm going to run with uh, EMU and we're going to take over the college football world. Are you going WKU, Nick? You have to, right? No, who did I say last time? I said someone with awesome uniforms. I, I don't remember. Dude, I like playing with Louisville on. Uh, in Louisville is a good one. I know one. that's yeah, not like I one of those. That. You know, no, that's I know a good one. Dynasty team, you want the small G5 team. But, dude, I have to go with the teams with the cool helmets. I don't care about anything else. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. What do you say? Get to two more? Two more questions. Uh, first, T. Smith says, where would you rank Notre Dame's running backs uh, in their room this season in all college football? Hmm, where would we rank Notre Dame's running back room in all of college football? That's one I have to circle back to. There's a lot of teams, and, and I know wherever I rank Notre Dame, I'm leaving some teams out. I think Notre Dame will have what they need in that room, if that makes sense. I don't think it's going to be a thing where they are a one-dimensional team in any way, shape, or form. I, I'm excited for us to, uh, to get a gauge for them in the spring, though. Yeah, absolutely. How's that for, for an undefinitive answer? Yeah, hey, that works. Hey, Cody says UTEP. <laughs> I like it. That's a fun one. I like the, it. The Miners. Out in El Paso. That's good yeah, stuff over there. Cool little. They have a really cool campus, too. That's good stuff. Um, so we got a couple more questions. But I'm going to get to this one in the end because we don't talk a ton. I guess we do kind of talk a lot about USC. But Matthew Armstrong says, how do you think Lincoln Riley will adapt and change his coaching style in the new Big Ten? I think he's doing the right thing to start. I mean, they went out and were really aggressive in who they hired on that staff, guys from NFL backgrounds, guys from across town in Dayton Lynn at UCLA and the job he did. So the fact that there is an evolution they're trying to undergo there, whether it's out of self-preservation, whether it's because they were forced to from their new powers that be at USC, I don't know. But the direction is encouraging. Now, what it ends up 
resulting in is going to be what we judge them by, obviously. And so I'm, I'm curious how much of that side of the football evolves with a new staff. Because we haven't seen Lincoln Riley without Alex Grinch in some time. Like, we've seen them make the college football playoff and get drugged because they don't have a defense. The college football playoff caliber offense has been there pretty consistently. Now, you lose Caleb Williams like we just talked about. But, like, I think that uh, that side of the football being able to hold serve in the Big Ten is going to be the most important factor, obviously, for their aspirations in 2024. So what will they look like? What will they do to adapt it? I think they're doing the right things right now with how they hire the staff. And the next part of that is how you acquire the talent. So I'm curious to see it, Nick, but that should be uh, learn a lot about the old, the old USC Trojans and Lincoln Riley here, their first year in the Big Ten. Might be trial by fire a little bit, but yeah. uh, nonetheless will be a talking point for us. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, hey uh, Ferris, OG Gary, uh, and it was Big Joe. Didn't get to your questions. Come back tomorrow. We'll get to them then. Phenomenal. Um, Love it. Yep. Big Nick, appreciate you, brother. See you, buddy. Appreciate it. Same time tomorrow. Hey, lock in same time tomorrow, 11 a.m. Eastern. We are joined by Miami head coach Mario Cristobal. Again, 11 a.m. Eastern. Talking Cam Ward coming to the U and Mario Cristobal's impressions of him so far. Talking about what they hope to accomplish during spring football like make sure dialed in here got that conversation queued up for you should be a good good time tomorrow in the live chat we appreciate y'all we love y'all we're gonna keep this party rolling as we always do and we will see y'all next time